The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. You can play with a future scenario and it can change your behavior today and in ways that support your health and happiness. And so it's it's like this weird, you know, we're thinking about the future, we're changing our behavior today. And uh, yeah, it's like, it's almost like the time-space continuum is collapsing a little bit in our minds. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Jane McGonigal. Jane is a world-renowned game designer who challenges players to tackle real-world problems such as poverty, depression, and climate change through collaboration. Jane is also a future forecaster, serving as the current Director of Games Research and Development at the Institute for the Future. Her games and forecasting work has been featured in the New York Times, Wired, The Economist, CNN, NPR, and more. As a two-time New York Times bestselling author, she has recently published her third book called Imaginable. In this episode, I talked to Jane about the intersection of gaming and future forecasting. Jane asserts that games are not just for escapist entertainment. They could also be used to help prepare us for what's to come. Imagining fictional simulations can inspire us to make present changes which can influence our personal and collective futures for the better. We also touch on the topics of creativity, psychotherapy, forecasting, hope, and tech. It's with my great delight to now bring you Jane McGonagall. It's great to be back. And I feel like I was one of your very first podcast guests. Like, <laughs> I know. Like episode one or two or something like very We should look low. back at that. We should look back at that because I feel yeah. like you were there like ground zero. Well, like, literally, it might have been the first, like, for, <laughs> I'm sure it was like the first three episodes. Like, there were no live episodes when I talked to you. It was... Uh, Right in the ground floor. Yeah, yeah, you were right there. So thank you for believing in me. <laughs> uh, back in back in the day, I really appreciate it. And I still I still believe in you. And I I love this new book that you wrote. Uh, before we um, get to the new work, it may have been some time since our listeners remember the last conversation I had with you. Maybe you could tell them a little bit about uh, what a futurist is and and how in the world. You created such a amazing, unique niche for yourself by combining futurism with game hmm. design. I can't hmm. think of too many other people that have uh, have really are, are in that niche. Uh, mm. and yeah, if you a, find a, someone a, else in that niche, I'll introduce you know. them to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. I just love that. That's all. I'm all about creativity, and I love you know self actualizing, unique creative potentials like you've done. So yeah, if you could just uh, you know we step back a moment, just tell people a little about those two things. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess my career as a futurist began before I knew what a futurist was. Um, mm. Scott, I'm sure you know the saying from Alan Kay, the computer scientist, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Mm. And I Love was that. 
Yeah. And in my early game design career, I was running around telling people, we need to make a new kind of game, a game that really helps people actualize themselves in their real lives and not just a virtual world. I had all these ideas and theories and I was doing research as a grad student at Berkeley. But but what I was describing didn't quite exist yet. And one of the things I was trying to you know, bring into existence was a type of game that would allow people who regularly play video games to apply the same mindset and creativity and flexible thinking to real world problems. So I was imagining a future where gamers were really playing in service of humanity's long-term well-being, but like there weren't a lot of games that a gamer could play for that purpose. And I wound up connecting with the nonprofit organization in Palo Alto called the Institute for the Future, which you have visited, Scott, in person. (laughs) They're great people. Yeah. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, you know, maybe you can make some games to help people imagine the future and we'll see what gamers are good at when it comes to the future. And so I started creating essentially social simulations of the future, which is kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons game, like where you sit around the table and you go on this imaginative adventure together. But instead of it being like six friends around a kitchen table, it might be 10,000 people around a social network. And we're all imagining, what if we woke up and it was the worst pandemic the world had seen in a century? What if we woke up and there was this crazy misinformation conspiracy theory group on social media and all your friends and family were thinking crazy things and you didn't know how to help them? And we're trying to imagine worlds we might wake up in and think about how we could prepare for those futures or help others or maybe even avoid them by taking Mm -hmm. action today. And that turned out to be not such a strange idea when I first started saying gamers could definitely do important things with their gaming skills. We just, it took a while to sort of prove the concept because we started making these games in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. All the games are set 10 years in the future. So we had to kind of, you know, wait a decade and see, you know, did imagining the future actually help people who participated or help us learn things that we could put into action once the real future arrived. Have you always been imaginative? Like when you Mm. were a kid, because the thing that binds both those things is is obviously an appreciation of imagination. Mm. So when you were young, were you you a daydreamer in school? I was a huge daydreamer. I'm just wondering if you were a huge daydreamer. I used to get in trouble for it. Mm. I mean, I did not get in trouble for daydreaming, but I was always inventing games and immersive worlds on the playground. So I would be, you know, okay, here's the situation. I grew up in the 80s, so we were always imagining nuclear war, which we stopped imagining for a few decades, and now suddenly we're imagining it again. But we'd say, okay, imagine, you know, it's a nuclear war, and we all have to hide, and here's, and on the playground, we'd be making a bunker. I mean, I was was always trying to design imaginative experiences for us to sort of play in, I guess you would say. I mean, some some of them were fun ones, but there was a lot of, now that you mention it, um, I love this. This is like a therapy session for me. There, there was always like a- I tend to do that. I tend to do that. <laughs> there was like a survivalist. I don't know if that was just growing up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You were always watching after school specials where terrible things happened to kids. You, you would get kidnapped. You would get locked in a basement. Do, do you remember like- Growing up, I hundred percent do because I had a neurotic Jewish mother who would drive mm. me to the bottom of my street <laughs> to the bus stop. Yes, <laughs> she yes. drive me to the bus stop. Yes, so, so yeah. I do think yeah, my friends or my twin sister and I were definitely always imagining, like, okay, how would we handle this mm. terrible situation? But it was, it was, it didn't feel anxious at the time. It felt playful and imaginative. So maybe, maybe that's where I have the ability to, to, you know, find it fun to imagine things that other people describe as hard to think about. I mean, like imagining, you know, a migration crisis is one of the things that I'm asking people to play with now. You know, there, there are a lot of things that make it, I don't know, painful to think about or create anxiety, but, um, I find that you can use the psychological safety of games you know, because when you play a video game, right, they're all in apocalyptic worlds and mm. wars and, and you know, terrible disasters. And we don't experience that as 
overly threatening. So maybe in these future simulations, we can we can use that psychological safety of games to think about things that are otherwise painful or challenging to think about. Yeah. So what I'm hearing, just reflecting that back on you, is that one of your superpowers is what my mentor Jerome Singer called positive constructive daydreaming. And he differentiated mm-hmm. that form of daydreaming from neurotic daydreaming, or he called it guilty dysphoric daydreaming, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is a different style. And then he actually differentiated that from a third daydreaming style, which was poor attentional control, which is what people with <laughs> ADHD uh, you know, tend to have difficulty with. And that's a different kind of daydreaming. But it seems like you really had the superpower even at a young age for for positive constructed daydreaming. He said it was the one most linked to creativity. It was the one most linked to being able to plan your future in a productive way and not getting so neurotic about the content of the daydreams, but using it as fodder for mm. planning. So that's where I'd place you in that sort of factor analysis <laughs> of daydreaming styles. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure everyone listening is also like self-diagnosing now. Um, it's funny. I mean, one of the one of the things that has been weird about becoming a futurist is mm. sort of sneaking up sideways on some psychological literature that's not in the field of future studies or future thinking, which is very much, in, in some ways, there's a lot of content to it. You're imagining a world in which everybody gets universal basic income or a world in which cars are banned in cities. Like you're trying to imagine specific futures. But in the in the psychology field, there is, you know, a burgeoning interest in the use of the future for for positive mental health, right? Our ability to be motivated by the future, or if we can envision the future with more specificity, it can help either control anxiety. If we control our imagination, we can choose what to imagine instead of the constant cycle of negative scenarios we get stuck on, or with depression, trying to trying to make it more specific because I think in depression, people suffer from a vague imagination, which can affect their ability to plan and motivate themselves. So it's interesting. I'm not a psychologist, but when I imagine the future, I do imagine a convergence of these fields a little bit more than there has been where psychologists could work with futurists. You know, futurists can give you the content for the imagination and psychologists can help design, you know, what types of habits or community rituals, you know, of imagining the future could could help us it just improve our well-being, and not just at an individual level, but at a at a community level, right, a demographic level. Well, Jane, didn't you write a report uh, with the, for the for the Imagination Institute? Yes, I thought you did a terrific job with it. So I want to give you credit. Thanks. There. And yeah. like, I mean, what do you what do you think, Scott? Yeah. I, I mean, there is a there are a lot of researchers researching, I think, like general future thinking practices where we imagine ourselves 10 years from today. But I feel like we need to bring some futurists into the room so we can make it make it a little more concrete. Imagine yourself 10 years from today and you have a neurosensing device that allows you to participate in a social network where you just broadcast your emotions or your thoughts unfiltered, not even typing anymore, but just, you know, we can like put, put actual, uh, scenarios in there. Look, I love it. I love the idea of adapting the work you've done for use in, uh, clinical psychology settings. I think that's what you're getting at. And yeah. there's such amazing potential there that has been completely unrealized, but this relates so much to my mentor, Jerome Singer's work. That's, I would love to get a copy of a book in your hands. Mm. The book is uh, super quick. If I see, can find it quick in my bookshelf, but it's called um, Imagery and Psychotherapy. Oh. He uh, developed a whole form of psychotherapy that is just not used much today, um, which uses dreaming and imagery and imagination of the future specifically to help people with uh, mental disorders. And uh, mm. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm buying this as a gift. It's a gift to you. <laughs> I'm going to yes. buy it. And if you give me um, an, an address to send it to, I will be happy to do that. It's yeah. good, and I'll do a, I'll do a little mini workshop within the institute on it, oh, wow. and sort of educate my peers and colleagues because I it's interesting. Wow. There is a whole, there's been some weird, interesting intersections with 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 future forecasting and and I don't know maybe less like in current forms of psychotherapy. So this idea that there are futures that sort of percolate as almost like a subconscious narrative across society. Um, There was a researcher by by the name of Pollock who said that, 
you know, the stories we tell about society's futures, if they're utopian, it usually suggests that, that society's flourishing. And if we tell dystopian stories, we're on a downward trajectory. But there was a sense that like, almost in this kind of Jungian, like deep subconscious that we we all have a sense of the future that's coming that manifests in our stories and narratives. And, you know, I mean, there there has never been any sort of fact-checking, longitudinal studies of that theory. It's just sort of a it's just sort of an interesting theory. Um, but there's, I think there's long been in future forecasting, even going back to the, like one of the founders of the field, Alvin Toffler, mm-hmm. his book, Future Shock, was about the, almost the trauma of having to like move into the future when the future feels very disruptive or very changed. And, you know, he had the sense that if technology changes too fast or social norms change too fast or laws change too fast, the economy changes, we get, we get like, we get frozen, we get anxious, we have a sense of powerlessness. So I guess in the way, like futures and feelings are very much bound up. Linked. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Once it hijacks your amygdala, it's like, Forget about it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're going down a dark path there. <laughs> Once it hijacks your middle, forget about it. That's uh, that's like a pull quote. If there's like Hold a teaser that. for this episode, yeah. Once it hijacks your middle, forget yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> I wrote um, I, it's so true. I wrote an article about like the the myth of the neurotic genius because mm-hmm. there's this idea that like genius imagination comes from a sort of crazy neurotic brain. And I actually showed the neuroscience of that. And I was like, actually, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, really good imagination is not one that's hijacked by the amygdala. So I think maybe that's a case of like people who are suffering are often moved to make art. And so it's like mm. the art becomes a coping mechanism rather that's than true. you need it to create. You don't need suffering to create yes. it, but if you are suffering, you may be very much moved to like, meaning making and sense making that's a genius point you just made because everyone like talk treats everyone treats correlation like it's causation right and you just like broke it down you're like (laughs) i think it's moving in this direction i Uh, i know that i i create games when i'm in deep despair so Mm -hmm. that is my that is my sort of form of self-healing yeah yeah me too i i really resonate with that deeply well tell us a little about the distinction you make in your book between positive imagination and shadow imagination because i think that maps on nicely to some of the other things we've been talking about yeah well you know when we consider what a future might be like at the institute we do try to consider both the the benefits of this future, reasons to be excited about it, problems we might solve in this future, but also to balance that with, well, are there maybe some unintended consequences, some risks, some harms, but vice versa also. When we're imagining a future global risk or threat like climate change or pandemics, we can also try to imagine, well, what might improve in society as we come together to solve these problems or what new technologies or social movements might come into being that would ultimately lead us to a better future. And I think what we find is most people tend to have sort of natural bias towards one or the other. Like mm-hmm. if you give me any scenario, I can just tell you, Scott, like I can think of a hundred things that we could do to help or have long-term benefit. Mm-hmm. Like I just naturally go in that direction of looking for positive action to take. Um, but that can be really unbalanced. So let's say there's a new technology. Well, it might have all kinds of systemic harms and, and affect different people differently or new policies. And, you know, I need I need some help balancing out my positive imagination with the shadow imagination. And so when I play with scenarios, I try to bring lots of people together who can represent their own values and their fears and their worries and their interests and their communities. And we can kind of you know, think about, well, it sounds like a great policy, but if this group's not included, then it's actually going to exacerbate economic inequality. Um, And uh, if it's just for ordinary people, I find that it's like a good practice, like to, to, if you feel really excited about something, can you balance it out with increasing your awareness of, you know, potential risks? But that's really all part of a bigger a bigger mindset that I call urgent optimism, which I mean, like positive and shadow imagination, it's it's in service of feeling this urgent optimism that there are problems to be solved 
changes we need to make and that there are new ideas and policies and technologies and social movements that can help us make that change or address that risk so we're not frozen, we're not stuck in old ways of doing things. And I'm, I'm trying to fuel people's fire for the future by helping them not feel so much, you know, anxiety or powerlessness. Mm, I love that. Uh, yeah. You, you, urgently optimistic. <laughs> urgently optimistic. Yeah, yeah, I see what you did there. So uh, did, you, did you coin that term? Urgent I did. Optimistic? I love that. And, and <laughs> the weird thing is, it, I coined it originally in my research on video gaming because mm-hmm. I was trying to explain what, what happens essentially at a neurological level. Why will a gamer fail 99 times at a level and they are convinced at the 100th time they're going to succeed. Like, why Why is it that most gamers spend 80% of the time failing and they still say they love an activity? What is happening in the brain to keep them motivated and optimistic and high energy and high attention, even when they're getting all this negative feedback? Because I was thinking if we could replicate this, even to a small degree, at school or at work or in our personal pursuits, we might be able to stay engaged longer with tougher problems. So I first noticed it in gamers. And, you know, I think we probably talked about that on the first episode that we did together, you know, that just that constant sense that something good could happen in the game. Like we're making these decisions, we're making up to 60 decisions a minute. And every time we make a decision, we're getting that little expectation in the brain, something good could happen, my score could go up, I could hit the weapon, like I could get an advantage. It's it's this incredible abundance of hope. And mm. because we get the feedback so quickly, we can essentially like supercharge that anticipation and reward cycle. And so anyway, it happens very easily in games. It doesn't happen quite as easy with regard to the future because it takes like 10 years for the future to arrive. We don't get positive feedback. We don't get any kind of feedback when we think about the future unless we essentially try to, can we engineer some feedback, which is why you know, I try to get people to play games with the future. So at least we can imagine some feedback in this situation so that it feels like you're really playing with it and not just kind of waiting for the future to happen. Oh, wow. I just came up with a title for this episode, (gasps) uh, playing games with the future. I like it. (laughs) With Jane McGonigal. I love that. So you did this, you have many examples of this, and I thought now would be a good time to go through some examples. In 2008 and 2010, at the Institute of the Future, you ran simulations that predicted human behavior in the face of a global respiratory pandemic. Now, that's incredible, right? Like you, You simulate this precise detail from social distancing to masking to wildfires and even the spread of disinformation, conspiracy theories, Mm -hmm. and the unbridgeable political divide. So in a sense, what you're saying is you called it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Scott, yes. And (laughs) and my dream is to be the worst futurist of all time because – you didn't all want to the call things it. that I yeah, all the things that I predict, I tend to focus on global risks, right? So yeah. I want to be wrong. I want people to look at me and say, Jane, why were you worried about this mass migration? It never happened. Don't you look silly? Like, don't you feel silly? And I want to be like, no, because we avoided it through action today. Like, of course, as a futurist, you want to prove yourself wrong. But we did. I think sort of inadvertently back up into a really interesting study of can people, can individuals accurately predict at a systemic societal level Mm. weird stuff that experts did not think would happen, right? So one of the questions that we asked the participants in the 2008 game, which was called Superstruct, was imagine that you've been asked to isolate or quarantine for a couple of weeks. Under what circumstances would you disobey? Would you refuse to isolate? What would you leave the house for? And the number one thing that people said was for religious worship, to go to church, to go to synagogue, right? They felt it was so deeply ingrained in who they were, that it was so important to their identity and, and, and to participate in that community. And we were, so actually very early on in the actual 2020 pandemic, we have, we have religious leaders who participate in the Institute's community, you know, priests, we have ministers, people who lead worship. And I said, you have to go virtual because the one of the most clearest facts that we got out of the simulation with people are, are 
going to pray no matter what the CDC tells them. Oh, and and it turned out that that was the number one super spreader risk worldwide. And people went if they were positive, they went if they were exposed. And so, you know, I there is, I think, a misconception that individuals are bad at predicting their future states. And Scott, you probably know, like, there's there's some there's some research. I I don't know what it's affective like from, forecasting. Yeah, like affective Daniel forecasting. Gilbert, Daniel Gilbert's research, right? Like yeah. we we're never as like happy. Mm. Like purchases don't make us as happy as we think Correct. they will. We, we're or, terrible predictors of the future of our emotions, our happiness. Yeah. Right, but I feel like maybe that has been over extrapolated in the mm. sense that I. What I am starting to believe, this is, we've had multiple games where people had to live through what they imagined. The first one was World Without Oil, where people imagined oil, re- gas reaching a certain price point, and, mm. and then it did. And, and we're like, well, okay, are you driving less? Are you carpooling more? Are you working from home? Like, what are you? And people did what they said they would do. And I feel like maybe we can accurately predict our likely reaction to a novel mm-hmm. situation or crisis. Maybe maybe we can't, you know, maybe we would have predicted I'll be miserable in a pandemic and it turned out that people were actually found ways to be happy because we're so emotionally resilient. Like maybe feelings aside, I do, what I see in our games is when people actually had to live through things, they mm-hmm. accurately predicted, you know, we had people practice wearing masks in the 2008 game, because we're like, well, what do you, you know, it's, it'll be an important skill in a pandemic. Let's try it out. But what we saw was in terms of the the novelty of the physical discomfort that people were reporting, the social awkwardness. Another thing that we said at the beginning of the real pandemic is like, this is, even though it sounds like a small and rational action to take, mm. there's going to be problems. So people are not going to want to follow this simple advice. It's going to get complicated. <laughs> And and That's so, sure. yeah. So I think you know I'm I'm excited about trying to revisit this idea about like can we predict our own futures? Because mm-hmm. I think there is on one level it, it is absolutely true that we are experts on our own futures in terms of understanding our values, our needs. You know what we would likely be afraid of or what would drive us to take action in defiance of, you know, advice or, or common sense. So yeah, I, I, this is another one of those areas where I think there's good, good dialogue to be had in the future. Like what can people predict about their own future accurately and how might we leverage that intelligence? Because in some ways I think ordinary people are proving to be better experts on the future than the experts. Well, this is really interesting what you're saying. It it, it kind of contradicts some of the psychology evidence to a certain degree, and in a good way. I'm I'm glad that you're contradicting the psychology evidence because some of it's pessimistic, showing that people are really uh, well. I don't know if it's pessimistic. So, but here's the finding: people predict that um, under catastrophes, like they, they say, well, if I in both hedonic directions. So if they say, if mm. I win the lottery, I'll be this happy, so so happy, and they're usually not as happy mm-hmm. uh, eventually after like a day than what they predict. And then it happens in the other direction as well, um, where people will say, well, if I lost all my arms and legs, you know, I would be this unhappy, yep. you know? Yep. But then they look to see people who yeah. don't have arms and legs, just how, you know, sad it is for them and yeah. et cetera. Um, yeah. People who in the past have, you know, people get in car accidents, things like that. And they adapt too. So yeah. there's kind of like an overarching point I get from all that research is that humans have an amazing resiliency mm-hmm. uh, as, as well as kind of an innate kind of thermal uh, regulation thing that constantly gets us back to some baseline that biological temperament mm-hmm. that we 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 have like we differ in our set point but we all have mm-hmm. a, a certain biological temperament so i'm wondering how that sort of evidence and research dovetails with what you're with what you're saying yeah i mean it if we accept that that is correct which i have read much of the literature and i i generally accept that it's correct even in my own lived experience right mm-hmm. So that's affective forecasting, but Mm. behavioral forecasting is different. So like Scott, for example, what if I said a year from today, okay, so it's, it's March 14th, 2023, and you're on on an airplane and you've got a parachute on Mm. and they're asking you if you want to jump. Do you think you could fairly accurately predict whether you are likely to jump or to wait for the plane to land and walk off the plane? Oh my gosh. What a what a what a uh, question! Now, now I just have a follow up question. Like, 
what, what, what are the probabilities they give me that that thing is going to land? <laughs> are they giving me greater, <laughs> greater it's, it's, like, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure ride. Like, I don't know what's happened. You've been like, your friends are like, we're going parachute. I mean, basically, oh, I so see. it's not a catastrophe in the plane. Oh, it will going land. Down. It will but, land. I can but make could that you, decision. it will land. But could you accurately, do you feel like, I feel I could pretty accurately tell you that short of them paying me 10 to $20 million, I would not do it. It's just not in my nature. I'm not brave enough. I'm not interested in thrills enough. And uh, I think I'd be traumatized by it. So I would, mm. I would avoid it. I'd have flashbacks the rest of my life. So that's what I would feel. And I am pretty confident that if you put me on a plane a year from now, that is how I would act. Now, maybe something would change. But do you feel like you could give a pretty accurate prediction? This is my nuanced <laughs> answer. I've thought it through okay. now. And okay. I have an answer. And here's the paper says. Um, <laughs> if, I, if it was sprung on me. If it was sprung on me without any, uh, I had no idea this was going to happen. Like I'm on the plane with all my friends. Hey, we're having fun. They're like, oh, by the way, Scott, we're jumping. <laughs> I could say with very high confidence, it ain't going to happen, folks. Ain't going to happen. I'll, t- I'll take the videos. I'll put them on Instagram for you. Right, right. But- my nuanced answer is that the way knowing me, that's something that could potentially excite me. That idea of doing that someday, mm. if I worked my way up psychologically yeah. and I started with like five feet where I jumped off a plane <laughs> five yeah. feet above the ground that went up and build up to it. But yeah. if it was sprung on me, I don't think <laughs> I'm going to so do that. So that's great. So see, you're using your own knowledge of yourself Correct. to make the most accurate prediction you can and under what circumstances your prediction would change. So my theory is now having run I don't know, a dozen of these simulation games and, and being able to follow up with people to varying degrees, like life actually sounds similar to the scenario that we imagine, that if you were to get 100 people together to make a prediction like that, most of them, you know, a high, a very high majority, not just like 50-50 chance, but a high majority would would accurately predict because we know ourselves. And although we change, we... We can we still we have like good we have like good intelligence. We're like we're like the CIA or FBI for our own minds. And yeah. so I think um, you know one of the one of the big scenarios that we're playing with now, this idea of what if up to a billion people on the planet need to move, forced migration due to extreme heat, drought, wildfire, wildfires, and that sort of thing. Right? That's that's right smack in the middle of expert estimates for migration in the next few decades, right? Mm. So what if we were to try to, I'm imagining, move people equitably and intentionally instead of having people sort of risk life or death, trying to illegally get into countries, get on ships that are sinking? What if we established a global effort similar to trying to roll out the COVID-19 vaccine? What if we had a decade to roll out a planned, equitable, safe, economically supported migration to the most climate resilient places on earth who want to have denser cities where we might see more than creativity and innovation and productivity and all of that, right? And so one of the things I'm asking people is simply what their risk for climate or what their tolerance for climate risk will be, what their decision-making process will be. So there's a survey that participants take and it asks questions like, how many days of extreme air pollution are you willing to tolerate a year before you feel like it's time to move? How many days of extreme heat, like over 120 degrees? How many days without power because the power grid is um, brittle and due to extreme weather? how many days of, well, whatever, you know, all the the, the climate risk factors. And then Mm -hmm. also, where would you move? Where would you consider moving? Like list your top destinations. If if there was financial support to move and Northern California is no longer safe because of the wildfires, which that's where I live, where do you think you might go? And so one, trying to stimulate imagination in individuals just for themselves so that they're not like that they've never thought about it. Let's let's at least start thinking about it in case we we have to move. Mm-hmm. But also just to collect some information about, I guess, how fixed are we going to be? Like, look at what happened with the pandemic. And it it, it was moving from city to city. And yet the rest of the world was like, eh, it's just China. Okay, well, it's just Italy. Okay, it's just New York City. And, and I'm curious about how quickly or slow we might be 
to start moving people before there is extreme suffering? Are we going to wait until things are really, really bad and we don't have a lot of time and, and people are suffering? Or is there a chance, maybe if we start imagining now, that we might actually start moving people around the planet in a way that supports human flourishing and less, you know, like not leaving people trapped behind borders. And I think we could get some good intelligence by asking people these questions now. Mm, yeah, it's this is so important. And I, I guess I'm wondering, uh, you've done great experiments on this where you recruit participants and uh, do this formally. How can this scale up, right? So how can mm. like everyone on Twitter get a chance to participate <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the Institute for the Future just opened its first online simulation center where any oh. member of the public can join. Amazing. And we're doing a few things. There's a monthly scenario club. So it's like a book club, but for scenarios. So this Wednesday, we're having our first meeting and it's in multiple meetups because we have members from literally all over the world. Um, I'm, we have over 80 countries now in, in our community. We just opened a few weeks ago. But it's great. It's great for building empathy, see the future from different points of view. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so we're doing Scenario Club. We're doing twice a year social simulations, full on, spend 10 days deeply imagining a specific scenario. We're looking at decision making around geoengineering. How will the planet decide if we're going to? inject sulfate particles into the atmosphere to block the sun for 10 years while we get off fossil fuels, things like that. Um, how will we get informed consent from all of humanity? Mm. So you can come and participate. We're doing game nights, future forecasting game nights. Um, and I'm hoping that by bringing people together to play these games with each other and with me and other experts at the Institute, they'll mm. take these skills and habits and games and, you know, in, in my book, Imaginable, there's a whole chapter like, so you want to run a social simulation? Here's how. Mm -hmm. And, you know, walks you step by step through the creative process. Because I don't think, I don't think it's going to be a case where we have, you know, 200 million people playing the same simulation as much as I would like, you know, them to be as popular as, you know, Fortnite or Minecraft. I think um, more likely this will be a skill that lots of people have mm -hmm. and can, create their own simulations and their own scenarios to examine different futures, whether it's inside a company to imagine like long-term implications of a new product or service they're building mm -hmm. um, or within a city, you know, a township, a school. Yes. That's, that's how I hope it will scale out. Not, not as one big game that necessarily we all have to play at the same time, but as many hundreds of thousands of scenario designers and simulation developers all creating their own futures. Sounds like a fun position <laughs> <laughs> to be a scenario designer. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Well, here are some challenges in the next uh, decade that are really important to think through, to think the, the uh, unthinkable. Human migration issues due to climate change. I looked into that more after reading about that in your book, and I was like, holy cow, that is, we're really not prepared I mean, there are people who just don't even want people to migrate into America. And it's right. like, okay, can we think a little more broadly about the about this? Because there might become a day where, to no fault of anyone, you know, mm -hmm. they can't even live where they, they are anymore. And that could be you. by the, it, Not, it, not it, you, it, Jane, it, but you know what I'm saying? The people who yeah. say, no migration, you know, like, to say, well, look, this could be you. If, okay, so how have you changed the asteroid forecast? Another big mm -hmm. existential threat that opened my mind up big time, uh, those threats. Uh, the future of food is medicine. Incredible. Mm. Um, you really uh, broadened my mind with that. And uh, I looked into, I did research on all of these because I was like, I'm so nerdy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> is this true? And I was like, oh my, now I'm like obsessing over like these issues. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, it is a pretty much a proven fact within, this is one of my favorite things to study is if you yeah. play with a scenario, yeah, yeah. it essentially creates more salience for that topic in your brain. Like yeah. you get a reward hit when you see information out in the world about it. So it's like if you play about food as medicine, if you hear about new pilot programs to give away free fresh fruits and vegetables instead of having to pay all this money for you know healthcare treatment later, you it's gonna just it's like in blinking neon Vegas lights to your brain. And you totally 
it's like you you just totally start to see the clues everywhere. It's a little trippy, but you you know it's cool because you learn faster. You you notice a change faster because everything's jumping out at you. Well, I changed my meal delivery service this week to all vegan. <laughs> hey, <laughs> yeah, so I'm like I. You're ready that. for that. Yeah. You're ready for the alpha gal crisis. I don't know if you yeah. got to that one about the the tick yeah. tick born pandemic. Where um we just kicked off a big simulation of that, um in cool. our urgent optimist community last Friday. People getting ready for a world in which, I mean, it's people are excited. You know, I mean, it's ostensibly the simulation is about the next time we face a pandemic, will we learn from COVID and do better? Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to re-traumatize people by having a simulation about a similar contagious virus. So we're simulating a tick-borne pandemic where it doesn't spread from person to person. It spreads via ticks. It's not a virus. It's You develop an allergic reaction to uh, a sugar molecule that's found in mammalian meat products. Like this is a real thing that exists. We're imagining it. And on one hand, what I hear from a lot of people, like where will they find hope for the future? They want to believe that we'll do better next time. And even today, I just saw there was an, an op-ed in the New York Times, will we do better next time? Everybody's trying to figure out, you know, reasons to feel like- There's hope. <laughs> we've learned, yeah. And to make meaning out of what we've lived through, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, with these, these are games. I want them to feel like they are psychological safe spaces mm-hmm. where you're not going to you're not going to have to just be overwhelmed with negative emotions in order to do the mental imagination. So yeah, we changed it to something. Well, I mean, like I, we changed it to the tick-borne thing, but man, people are into it. They're, they're thinking about, because it helps them imagine making changes that I feel like they want to make anyway, like Mm -hmm. a more sustainable plant-based diet, which in this pandemic you would have to undertake because it could literally kill you if you have mm-hmm. meat, you know? It's it's weird how scenarios work like that. It's like we may never live through a tick-borne pandemic, but you can play with this future scenario and it can change your behavior today and in, in ways that you support your health and happiness. And so it's it's like this weird, you know, we're thinking about the future, we're changing our behavior today and... uh yeah, it's like it's almost like the time space continuum is collapsing a little bit in our minds. It's incredible. It's amazing. God bless the default mode brain network. <laughs> yes. Thank you for teaching me about that. Thank you for, because it's all all of future imagination. Can we can we do that on this platform? I, yeah. I'm imagining yeah. the sound of the slab. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's yeah. that's where the future imagination is because you can't get that information from the reality that's in, around you, yeah, right? There totally. there are no facts yeah. about the future. It has totally. to come from your own creativity. Inner stream of consciousness. Yeah, and then another big challenge uh, that uh, I, I had been aware of before, but you, you reminded me just how uh, things can go wrong here, the peril and promise of facial recognition technology. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. That could lead to some really, not just bias, bias is good, but discrimination, which is not good. Yeah. Yes. And I think, you know, I was, in doing the research for this book, I was unbelievably, I don't know, unnerved by discovering that the pandemic actually accelerated this technology because Mm. the companies that create facial recognition software, they had to figure out how to recognize people with masks on Mm. and they did it. All of the leading facial recognition companies now, they only need to see this little tiny sliver of your Mm. eyes. And so suddenly the technology is leapfrogging and, you know, I'm asking people to imagine a world in which it's not just the government or police, it's on our apps, it's in dating apps, it's in our social media sites. And Mm. um, I always say, Scott, I'm like obsessed with trying to help people find ways not just to imagine the future, but to feel like more prepared for it. That's the thing. And um, one of the things I'm like, people get, you know, like, oh, facial recognition, what should I do? You can go to YouTube and you can look for a video tutorial on how to apply adversarial makeup. So you can apply makeup that confuses the algorithms. And, you know, it's going to be like a dance because the algorithms, I'm sure, will get better and then we'll what have new makeup techniques. Like? What would I look like with this makeup on me? You would look like you were from the 80s because there's a lot of geometric, okay. <laughs> like okay. geometric shapes. Like you have like a big triangle over one eye, like in purple. And I'm, like- I'm, I'm kind of digging this. I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been inspired by Andy Warhol lately to kind of change my look. 
Um, mm. So maybe maybe that would be the direction. I've been trying to think of what direction to go in, but maybe that could work. Okay, Scott, I love that for you. I love that life choice for you because then you would become a walking a signal walking, of change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it's literally amazing. you're from the future. People be like, Scott, what are you doing? And you're like, let me tell you about facial recognition and where and it's going. That, yeah, totally. hundred percent. Yes. And it would also make me, I've been learning some improv techniques from Second City. So yeah. <laughs> yes. And it also would signal like rebelliousness, which is mm. cool. It's oh. cool. It's cool. Like, yes, it's, it's true. Like Andy Warhol was cool, right? He's like, I don't care about anything. Right. right. I, I did make me be like. No, I'm like standing up against the system. It's trying to it's, steal, steal my information. It's yeah. very punk rock to yeah. wear adversarial makeup. It's mm-hmm. true. Maybe that's why I like it. It's like my midlife crisis. I need to be like rage against the machine again mm-hmm. with my facial. Yeah. But then I'll, I'll tell you, Scott, on the other hand, so I have people imagine the, the scenario that we use to imagine how facial recognition might affect us is I have you imagine that you're out in public somewhere and you pick a place because we always try to make it as specific as possible because it really works better when it's not just vague facts, but like a like a real movie playing in your mind. So I say, you know, pick a pick a street in the city you live or pick a restaurant or a store. You're someplace, you're someplace specific and you notice somebody picking up their phone and there's this gesture in the future. It's just this like click, whoop, and then down. And it's like the sign that you've been face yeah, face scanned yeah. and or face searched, right? I think it's how we I had described it in the book. And and I just asked you, like, how do you feel? Mm. And does it does this does your feeling change depending on who's face searching you? What if it's like a really attractive person? What if it's a kid? Mm. What if it's, wow. it's somebody in a uniform? And That's we're kind of like it does everyone it probably does. Mm. It probably does feel creepy. I ask people to, can you imagine a situation in which you would be happy to right. be face searched? Because we have to figure out why is this technology even going to be adopted in yeah. the first place? I mean, there must be benefits. There must be conveniences. There must be social mm-hmm. opportunities attached to it. And so mm-hmm. I think what's really going to blindside us is if we think a technology sounds so dystopian, we just can't even believe it would ever be adopted. Like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people feel that way about facial recognition. They are so convinced that it is just, you know, big brother, dystopian. It will definitely be regulated. It will definitely not be pervasive. Normal people will not be into this. I think we could use a little help imagining why ordinary people might be into it so that we're not so shocked and unprepared to make good decisions. Like we made terrible decisions about social media, I would say as a society, like how Mm. we would use it and what we'd use it for and how we would regulate it. So maybe if we, uh, and and literally because people thought it was a joke, we were like, oh, what are you, you're tweeting about what you ate for breakfast? What's that, a picture of your, you know, shoes? What, who's getting, like it was, it was dismissed as so, you know, patently stupid that nobody's going to use it. It's not going to be important, you know. So we miss the opportunity to shape the future when we're dismissive. So it's this, you know, as as you said earlier, it's the balance of positive and shadow imagination. We need a little more positive imagination Mm. so that we might anticipate what would lead people to embrace facial recognition. Yeah, I love this. Um, and uh, what I also love about a lot of what you're doing is you are applying some science, some systematic systematicity. Mm-hmm. Is that a word? To it? <laughs> I don't um, know. Is that a word? That is a word, right? Systematicity. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the scoring methods that researchers use in scientific studies to document the benefits of futures thinking? Mm. Let's. Well, there's lots of different ways to measure. There's ways to measure skill at future imagination. And there's ways to, I mean, what, what should we, should we start with skill at future imagination or should we start with like, let's I'll, start I'll do, with, yeah. How do you quantify that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, learning it. Yeah. <laughs> so one is the, um, the vividness. So mm-hmm. you can literally, you ask people to speak out loud or you can measure by taking somebody's story that they tell. So I could say, Scott, picture yourself walking on the beach 10 years from today. 
Mm. Just describe it. Take a few moments to write it down or just speak it out loud. And then you just count up the number of details, right? Mm. So is, is there sounds, sights, smells, emotions? Did you describe who you were with? Is it a specific person or is it vague a friend? You know, did you describe what you were wearing? Were there colors involved, textures? So the more details, the higher the specificity score. And this is something that I work with people all the time to increase mm-hmm. the specificity of their imagination. Because one of the reasons that we do future imagination is to overcome normalcy bias mm-hmm. so that you are, the more specific your imagination, the more plausible you rate a possible future. And I, my mission is to get people to believe that risks we dismiss and downplay and underestimate like a pandemic or mass climate migration like that it's real and we should take it seriously and don't just don't let your brain's normalcy bias just because it's never lived through it before don't let your brain you know get stuck assuming it will never happen Mm -hmm. so the more details the more likely you are to think it's plausible so Mm -hmm. i i work with people constantly just like make it more like the most detailed description you can. You you said hello to your, you know, neighbor. Well, write write the quote. I want to know the exact words that came out of your mouth and what facial expressions your neighbor made when you shared the news. So we get very so that's one thing we can measure. Um, we can measure immersiveness. Mm. So we ask people after they imagine, Scott, imagine yourself walking on the beach 10 years from now. I can just ask you to rate like on a Likert scale, how mm. how much did you have the feeling of as if you were already there, as if you were pre-living it, or how absorbed did you feel? So we rate on immersiveness. We can also rate future imagination skill on flexibility. So you could go through this whole, imagine yourself 10 years in the future on the beach, and then I'll be like, okay, Scott, I want you to reimagine this. Change as many details as you can. Change your physical, you know, reality. If you were totally, you know, your body was exactly how it is today. I want you to change. What's different about your body 10 years from now? How does it feel to be walking on the beach differently? Mm. Change, the, change the time of day if it was the morning. Now it says, and you see how many details you can change while still coming up with a realistic or plausible story. And so you count the number of changes and then how, again, on a Likert scale, how realistic does this new reimagining mean? And so if you're able to come up with highly, highly realistic, but also everything's different, um, that's a sign of your, your mental flexibility around imagining the future. So there's just techniques. And, you know, when I work with students, we're just, we practice these little habits. But one of my favorite ways to measure the benefit is so like pathways for future action. So Mm. I might have you imagine um, climate migration. And Mm. then I would say, Scott, how many many things can you think of that you could do today to be more ready for this future or to Mm. influence how this future turns out? Like if you want to prevent it or change it in some way. And you, again, you just score somebody on how many things they can list. You know, they could say, well, I could research what the most climate safe cities and countries are likely to be. I could see if I have any legal pathways to migration. I could learn a new language so I can welcome people who move from Indonesia. I could learn how to cook food from Indonesia since, you know, the game says many people are likely to move from there. I want to be ready to help people feel welcome by cooking for them. The more things that you could list, things you could do today, that's considered having more pathways to impact the future. It's um, similar to the idea of like pathways of hope. How do you how do you yeah. feel your self efficacy? Um, yeah. yeah. So that that would be another way. Um, and a lot of people feel like they have no way to impact the future. So this is actually very meaningful. If you can go from being like I don't know what to do about climate change to having a list of like twenty things that you can do mm. that help you be ready for it or change it or shape it um, can really create a, a profound shift in and just our emotional state today because we don't want to feel powerless. We want to feel powerful. Thank you so much for for elucidating that because I was wondering how you measure some of these things. For instance, it said that as an outcome of that uh, simulation in 2008 and 2010 with the with the global respiratory pandemic simulation, those who participated in the simulation were less shell shocked when COVID nineteen hit, and were able to act and adapt faster to change. To me, that's mm-hmm. incredible and just speaks volumes to the benefit of your approach. I, I was just curious scientifically how you like measured those two things, like less shell-shocked and ability to adapt faster to change. 
Yes, yes. Well, in that case, you simply can ask people, how surprised were you? How, like, when did you start making changes in your routine or in the supplies you were gathering? Um, so that would be a different, that's a different, that's a different type of gotcha. measure, right? Cool. Because the other measures are more about, like, changing in the moment now. Mm. For that one, you had to wait yeah. for reality to show up to see if it made a difference. Yeah, for sure. Did we able to get 100% of the same participants? No. no, 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 no. Yeah, trust Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. because it wasn't set up as a longitudinal study and that's this has been my big my big like call to the community is that we have to start doing longitudinal studies yeah. here. I mean, we're claiming to impact the future. Agreed. We got to follow up. There's only been one big longitudinal study of the, these types of methods, and it was on business performance. So companies that practice these types of, you know, scenario development and collecting signals of change, they, you know, make more money. They, they have more innovation, whatever. I mean, if you're a capitalist, that it sounds great, you know, go for it. I'm like more working at the, <laughs> the level know, of, you know, know, change the world, reform society, you know, I our personal well being. Um, yeah. So, no, it was very scattershot. I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't take my experience with Superstruct or Evoke in terms of how it impacted our experience with Future to be, it's not, I don't, it's not anecdotal, but it's very qualitative. Mm -hmm. And I, I really want there to be, more and better evidence about this in the future. The one um, randomized control trial that was conducted on the second game of Vogue, the World Bank, did an impact evaluation where they had some players play this game and imagine helping with a future scenario in which it was also about forced displacement due to violent conflict. So similar to what we're seeing in Ukraine. Oh, wow, they, right now. they were yeah. imagining that in Colombia and what they would do to help. How would they use their skills mm. and abilities to help themselves, their family, or others in their community? And they found that people who played this, this futures game, they had more pathways to actually impact the future. They were able to, at the end of it, name more actions they could actually take. They felt more confident that global challenges could be solved, more optimistic that they could use their own skills and abilities. They were better able to articulate actual, concrete, realistic things they could do than a peer group that took traditional university coursework in social change, social entrepreneurship, political action. So there was something about the scenario that led to statistically significant increases in that confidence, that hope, that, that future power or self-efficacy. But again, Nobody has followed up. That study no, was, you know, yeah. five or six years ago. If they ever have to live through it, does it actually impact them? To be honest, I don't know of anybody who would be set up for that now. If you have ideas for, you know, we need a grant, basically. We need, some, we need somebody with a long-term grant because it's going to take 10 yeah. years to follow up and, uh, totally. and figure this out. It's a lot of things. It takes the... That, but it also takes having the for, the real foresight and imagination to be able to have some certainty that in ten years this thing will happen. Right. <laughs> because imagine, do you say imagine the yeah. ground running everything and in ten years there's no one to follow up with, right? You're like, oh shit, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> right. Being little, it's I'm it's being a little cheeky, but also true. no. It, but it's yeah. God. It's true. It's hard, and this is hard. something I've struggled with my whole career. It's like you wanna you wanna create a body of scientific evidence to support these ideas. Um, but it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to do really rigorous studies of such uncertain domains. And like you said, if we don't know where, if we're ever going to live through it, how, how do we design? The only thing we can really measure is how people feel today. And so that's where most of the research that I've seen is this thinking about the future make us feel better today? And that's I, at least there's something there that's we something, can confidently say something good. Yeah, something good. Yeah, you're doing really great work. Hopefully, we get enough. You can you can get enough funding someday to buy a crystal ball. I hear they're mm. expensive. <laughs> that, was a, that, was, that was a corny joke. Corny joke. Okay, okay. I'm, <laughs> a Swarovski <laughs> crystal ball. Yeah, that, I hear they, they, there was those things are in the millions. So I'm, I hope you mean, probably. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I want to end on this quote. You've been really generous with your time. I want to end here with your quote that says, imagine doing something incredibly new and exciting for the next 10 years, years of your life. I want you to be able to imagine yourself doing and creating amazing things that would have been unthinkable and unimaginable before you had the future's thinking tools to inspire you. 
So I want to end on that note and encourage our listeners to do that. Um, yeah. You know, energize their lives, give them hope by 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 thinking the unimaginable in their lives um, in a, in a positive direction. Thank you, Jane. The work you're doing, even though it's not longitudinal, is still amazing <laughs> and awesome. And you're very you're so unique in this space. Um, so thanks for chatting with me today on the Psychology Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.